Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Warriors. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today, I am bringing you the story of a serial killer who struck twice, but in those two times, he killed four innocent people during his reign of terror. I do have to give a separate trigger warning today, because this case does involve rape and the murder of children. This is the story of a little-known serial killer by the name of Earl Richmond Jr. Now, let's dig in. In 1991, 24-year-old Army Specialist Lisa Ann Nadeau was stationed at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and she was assigned to the payroll office with the Troop Support Battalion. Lisa was a divorcee, mom of two, who lived alone with her two young daughters, Lisa lived in the housing area of Sheridanville, specifically for personnel stationed at Fort Dix. On the morning of April 5, 1991, Lisa was due to drop her girls off at the babysitters. When Lisa failed to show up with the girls, the sitter became concerned and went to Lisa's house to check on them. Just before 10 a.m., the babysitter entered Lisa's house and found the toddler and the baby okay, but they were unattended, which was odd. As the babysitter continued through the house, she entered Lisa's room and she found a devastating scene. She found Lisa's lifeless, partially nude body on her bed. She had a blanket tied around her head and under the blanket, Lisa had been hogtied. The sitter immediately called the military police who locked down the housing area and prevented anyone from leaving. One of Lisa's neighbors was trying to take his own daughter to daycare before going to PT that morning when all of a sudden he was stopped. One of his neighbors came over and delivered the grim news that Lisa had been found in her quarters dead. The neighbor knew Lisa from the neighborhood, and randomly, the neighbor also recalled having a mutual friend with Lisa, a former drill sergeant named Earl Richmond Jr. The Army investigators, aka CID, started investigating Lisa's death, and immediately they took a soldier into custody that very day. The soldier was an acquaintance of Lisa's, However, the acquaintance was released two days later and was never named in the media. During Lisa's autopsy, DNA evidence was collected, but you have to remember it is the 90s. Lisa's daughters were placed in the custody of a civilian agency until Lisa's parents, Arthur and Cecile Nadeau, could come down from her hometown of Plainfield, Connecticut. They took the girls home with them the very next day and later adopted Lisa's daughters as their own. A $5,000 reward was offered for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the persons or persons responsible for Lisa's death. Months went by with no new leads until November 1991. The task force investigating Lisa's homicide joined forces with a new task force that was looking into some possible fraud. The fraud involved the base's finance office, specifically the military pay section, where, by the way, Lisa was working in that same section when she was murdered. So the new task force was looking into reports that both military and civilian employees from that office were scheming money. 
The employees were skimming money from soldiers who were just traveling through Fort Dix on their way to fight in Desert Storm, but they were also skimming from soldiers assigned to Fort Dix. So the new task force looking into the fraud discovered that the military pay employees were cooking the books so that the soldiers wouldn't have to repay the advance. Then the finance employees would take a cut of the money. The initial estimates for this fraud was somewhere between $500,000 and $1 million. With inflation, think today that would be between one and two million. The task force thought that that was plenty of incentive for murder. However, within a few months, the task force, along with the FBI, they discovered that this money scam, well, it didn't start until June of 91, two months after Lisa's murder. Turned out there was no connection and Lisa's murder investigation was back at square one. No leads, no nothing, just a cold case that was getting colder by the minute. Before I tell you more about Lisa's case, we're going to take a step back in time now, two years before Lisa was murdered. So she was murdered in 91, and I'm taking you back to 1989. At that time, Fort Dix's main army mission was basic training, but there was a tenant unit on post that belonged to the Air Force. Security police trainees, now known as security forces, they completed a program called the Air Base Ground Defense at Fort Dix. It was abbreviated as ABGD. In the Air Force, the security forces are not only law enforcement officers, but they also protect bases from outside threats in garrison and while deployed. In 89, security police were separate from law enforcement and they received specific tactical training. At ABGD, they learned infantry tactics that included patrolling, close quarter engagement, weaponry, and other ground combat techniques. All that to tell you what happens next. On April 15, 1989, At about 9.30 p.m., two Air Force SP trainees, it was a male and a female, they were at Fort Dix returning from a late night movie when they ducked into a covered bus stop to wait out a rain shower. While they were sitting there, a man wearing a wool cap and tan jogging suit approached the bus shelter and he asked the two airmen who they were. They both stood up, but they didn't answer him. The man then pulled a small silver handgun out of his pants and pointed it at the male airman's chest. He demanded they give him any money they had. The airman handed over his wallet, and all he had in there was an unsigned $100 money order. The gunman frisked the male airman to make sure he wasn't holding anything back. The female airman at the time told the man, hey, I don't have any money on me. The man then proceeded to pat her down. Then, to her horror, ordered her to take her pants down. Once she complied, he pulled down his own pants. Pointing the gun at the male airman's head, the robber made the female airman kneel in front of him and forced her to perform oral sex on him. He told them if she didn't do it, he would blow the male airman's brains out. So the woman complied. This assault went on for about 10 minutes. Then, all of a sudden, the gunman was startled when a car drove by with its headlights on. The gunman told the two airmen to run into a nearby field. As they ran away, the perpetrator bolted. The victim's ordeal was finally over. The airmen ran to the closest building, which was a non-commissioned officer's club, and they immediately called the military police. Within a few minutes, they were picked up and taken to the MP station. There, they were shown a wanted board on the wall with eight sketches of known criminals. 
The two victims reviewed the sketches and they both picked out the same man. They felt that their attacker was a 32-year-old man named Richard Stevens. It bears mentioning something very important. In this photo lineup, there was only one picture on the board. The remaining seven faces were composite sketches, and Richard's picture was significantly larger than the composite sketches. The female airman thought that Richard looked a little heavier than she remembered the attacker being, which remember, she's just minutes from having seen him. But still, she was like, this is the guy. This is my assailant. She was later taken to an army hospital on post where they collected a rape kit taking samples from her body and clothing. Three days after this attack, at around 10 p.m., just 100 yards from the bus stop, another robbery took place. This time, it was a male military member. His branch is never identified in any of the reporting. The man was walking alone when he was held at gunpoint and robbed of his wallet that contained his military ID card. The man immediately reported the robbery, and based on his description of the assailant and their proximity to the sexual assault and robbery of the two airmen, CID was like, you know, these two attacks, which three days apart, they seem connected, meaning that the assailant was likely the same person. Okay. So let's go back to the first two victims, the male and the female. Five days after their assault at the bus stop, the two airmen were shown a live lineup, like actual humans standing in front of them in a lineup. From the lineup, both victims identified Richard Stevens again. They were like, yes, this is the man that assaulted us at the bus stop. With that additional ID, Richard was arrested and charged with aggravated sexual assault and robbery. The crazy thing is that the other military member who was robbed three days after the first assault, he was sure that Richard was not the man who robbed him. And interestingly, the money order taken from the male airman was later cashed at a pharmacy across the street from Fort Meade in Maryland. And the military ID taken from the lone military male member, it was used to cash two stolen checks at the Fort Meade base exchange, which hello, Isn't that like such a coincidence? This should lead any investigator with this information to believe that the two crimes were for sure connected or at least there was a strong likelihood. And the perpetrator is probably somewhere in Fort Meade or heading south. For those of you unfamiliar with Fort Dix and Fort Meade, Fort Dix is in New Jersey and Fort Meade is in Maryland. They are roughly 150 miles from each other, so it's a bit of a hike. But even with all this information, Richard Stevens was arrested and he would face trial for the assault on the two airmen. His trial began in January of 1990. The two airmen who identified him by picture and during the lineup, they again identified Richard at trial and testified that he was their assailant. Richard, however, maintained his innocence throughout the trial. Richard's defense attorney argued that he couldn't have been the assailant because the victim stated that the perpetrator held the gun in his right hand. Richard was left-handed, so it was simply not possible. I mean, it could be possible, but you know, that's what the defense is arguing. There was more to the trial, of course, but at the conclusion of the trial, the defense had thrown in enough reasonable doubt and the result was a mistrial. The prosecutor would not let up though, and months later, Richard was retried in March of 1990 on the same charges of aggravated sexual assault and robbery. Richard's second trial lasted four days, and this time, Richard Stevens was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison. But Richard Stevens appealed the conviction, 
And in June of 91, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals overturned Richard's conviction. Ordering a new trial, the other military member who had been mugged 100 yards away from the bus stop a couple days later, he testified at this trial. Because remember, he was clear as day arguing that Richard did not mug him. The new trial took place in September of 91, but this new witness's testimony did little to persuade the jury, and Richard Stevens was again convicted. Now, Richard's story does not end here, but we'll get back to him in a little bit. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus, which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code Mama Margo, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. If you remember from earlier, I mentioned a former drill sergeant named Earl Richmond Jr., He had been friends with Lisa. Earl had been living in New Jersey after he got discharged from the Army in 1990. He was a drill sergeant at Fort Dix for two years and was kicked out due to misconduct with his trainees. Go figure. So a little background on Earl. Earl Richmond Jr. started using crack cocaine and drinking heavily following his military discharge. He came from a troubled youth. His dad served in the military, but Earl Jr. had little respect for his father's career because he, quote, had a desk job. Which, I don't know, apparently this caused Earl some embarrassment. Earl's mom would use corporal punishment when Earl misbehaved, and Earl would lash out on any unfortunate animal that crossed his path. He tortured and killed animals in an expression of anger towards his parents. Earl moved back to his hometown of Fayetteville, North Carolina, a few months after Lisa's murder in 1991, and he reconnected with his best friend, a man named Wayne Hayes. Wayne introduced Earl to his ex-wife, 27-year-old Halissa Stewart Hayes. She was living at the Sunshine Mobile Home Park in Fayetteville. She was living with her two kids, a son named Desmond Phillip, who was eight, but he went by Phillip, and her daughter, Darian Deneen, who was seven years old. At the time, Halissa was dating a man named Barrett Park. 
Halissa Stewart was a medical assistant working for a private contractor that provided medical services for the military. She was due to be at work on Monday morning, November 7th at 7 a.m. But when she didn't show up, her co-workers called her house, but no one answered. Meanwhile, Halissa's father, William Stewart, he was growing worried that he hadn't heard from Halissa for two days. He was so concerned for her safety that he got into his car and he drove down to her house. He wanted to check on her and the kids. When he got there, he found that the door was locked, but he wasn't deterred and William decided to break in. And what he discovered was horrific. He found his daughter dead on her bed. He found his seven-year-old granddaughter dead in her bed. And he found his eight-year-old grandson dead in the bathroom. It was absolutely horrific. Darian and Philip Hayes attended Brentwood Elementary. The school decided not to tell their classmates about their violent deaths because so many kids in that area were latchkey kids and they didn't want them to be scared to be home alone in the afternoon after school. But they knew that the word would eventually get out so the school had counselors available for students if they needed to talk to someone. The principal saved a little Halloween story that Darian wrote for her class and gave it to her grandfather, William. The little girl had written, quote, it's a happy, scary night, end quote. She wrote this in careful penmanship and she drew ghosts and pumpkins and crayon to illustrate her story. Honestly, this absolutely wrecked me. She was only seven years old and the scariest thing in her life up to that point had been silly Halloween stories. At the Sunshine Mobile Home Park, Halissa was known as the kind of person a landlord wanted to rent to. She was a quiet rule follower and always paid her rent on time. She was working hard to provide for her children and give them a good home. There was a little playground for the kids in the trailer park where Philip and Darian played with other kids. The park manager said that the kids were quiet and polite. Halissa, Philip, and little Darian were laid to rest in the Cumberland Memorial Gardens in Fayetteville. Their father's best friend, Earl Richmond Jr., served as a pallbearer at the service and supported him through the whole ordeal, even riding with him in the limo to the cemetery. I couldn't find much information on the services other than that, but I can only imagine how heartbreaking it must have been for anyone in attendance to see the three coffins, one for an adult and two child-sized boxes. The three of them have matching granite grave markers with brass plates that are adorned with a rose in their names. While the family was laid to rest, the Fayetteville police were working to try to find the monster who had gone into the Hayes' little home and brutally murdered a mother and her two children. DNA was collected from Halissa's body despite the apparent attempt to destroy evidence by the perpetrator. You see, the perpetrator had poured rubbing alcohol on Halissa's genitals. Four people that were questioned early on were her father, William, her ex-husband, Wayne, her ex-husband's best friend, Earl, and Halissa's boyfriend, Barrett Park. During his interview, Earl told police he had not been to Halissa's house the weekend of the murder, but he pointed the finger at his best friend, Wayne, saying, I think that he was at her house that weekend, which kind of makes sense, right? Because it's always the ex-husband or the husband, right? So police questioned Halissa's boyfriend, Barrett, and her dad, William, too, but immediately their focus was on Wayne. Months went by with little movement on the case until Earl's sister, Andrea Knight, blew his story out of the water. You see, Earl claimed that he had not been to Halissa's house the weekend of the murders, but Andrea had other news. 
She told police that she had actually dropped her brother off near Halissa's house in the early morning hours of November 2nd. According to Andrea, she and her brother attended a house party that night when they left all of a sudden to buy $20 worth of crack cocaine. They each took a hit, then they went back to the party where they stayed for another two hours. Eventually, though, Andrea dropped Earl off about a mile from Halissa's house. When police heard this information about Earl, they were very interested in learning more about him. But in the meantime, they obtained a warrant for his DNA. And guess what? It was a match for the semen found inside Halissa's body. Police brought Earl in for an interview on April 3, 1992, five months after the triple murder. Earl did the denial song and dance with investigators, but when confronted with the DNA evidence, he caved. But he didn't just cave, y'all. He spilled his guts and confessed to killing the young mother and her children. But he had a story, of course. His version of events was that when he went to Halissa's house that morning at around 3.45 a.m., they got into an argument about how she flaunted her boyfriends around her ex-husband as a way to get at him. Earl called it messing around on Wayne, even though Wayne and Halissa were divorced. Then, in his own words, he said they engaged in, quote, forceful sex. But he maintained, listen, y'all, it was consensual. And then he said that they got into another argument. Now, I don't know what Earl considers forceful sex to be, but in this case, it is clear as day rape, and it is not consensual. Earl said that when they got into the second argument, Halissa struck him with an object, and that's when he punched her in the face with his fist. Halissa then called out for Philip, her son, to help her, and when the little boy ran into the room, he was horrified by the scene. And then the little boy, instead of going all the way into the room, he turned around, went to the hallway, and lay down because he was scared. Earl then grabbed Philip and pulled him into the bathroom where he found the scissors. There are differing reports about how many times he stabbed Philip, but the reports range from anywhere from 20 to 60 times, including slashing the little boy's throat. Earl also wrapped a cord around the little boy's neck five times, strangling the young boy. Then he admitted that he went to Darian's room where he sat her up on the side of the bed and strangled her with a curling iron cord. When he was done killing the two young children, he went back to Halissa's room, where he used his bare hands to strangle her, and then he attempted to destroy evidence by pouring rubbing alcohol on her vaginal area. That wasn't the end of Earl's confession, though. Now, it's not clear if he confessed first or if the DNA linked him, but at any rate, Earl Richmond Jr.'s DNA matched the semen that was found in the body of specialist Lisa Ann Nadeau. What the what? Yes, True Crime Army, hang on, because this is where this story does get a little bit confusing. At some point, Earl gave a full confession to Lisa's murder, but of course, he had a story. The following is a combination of what Earl said happened and what the evidence revealed. In the early morning hours of April 5th, 1991, Earl broke into Lisa's house. When he attempted to grab Lisa, she resisted, and in the struggle, Earl stabbed Lisa in the leg. But that didn't keep him from raping her. After raping Lisa, Earl began to strangle her. Lisa fought hard for her life as she clawed at her neck, trying to unwrap the hands that were slowly squeezing the life out of her. Earl then hogtied her hands and feet together to prevent her from fighting back 
and then he finished strangling her. Earl then dragged Lisa's partially nude body upstairs to her bedroom, where he threw her face down on the bed and beat her with a hammer. He then tied a blanket around her head and wiped the area clean to remove any fingerprints. He slipped back down the stairs and hid the knife he had used to stab Lisa in a ceiling tile in the kitchen. Then he simply vanished into the morning. With Earl's confession and the DNA match, Earl was extradited to New Jersey in October of 1992, and he was scheduled to face a federal judge and jury for Lisa's murder in early 1993. For Lisa's murder, Earl entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Before I tell you about Earl's trial, let's go back to Richard Stevens. You might recall that he was the New Jersey man accused and convicted of assaulting those two Air Force security police at Fort Dix in 89. At Richard's trial for the bus stop attack, the evidence against him was based largely on his identification by the two victims in the case. Now, if you remember, there had been a separate robbery of another military member a couple days after that attack. The thing is that Richard Stevens and Earl Richmond Jr., they tended to resemble each other a little bit. But Earl Richmond Jr.'s picture was not on the wall at the MP station, and Richard Stevens was. If you remember, the female airman said that she thought that Richard's picture looked like he was heavier than the assailant the night of the attack. There were other factors that the expert had presented at trial like weapon focus and stress of the situation, basically saying that the heavy stress and the victim's concentration on the gun, well, he basically said that might keep them from being able to correctly identify the assailant. Now, you're probably wondering about any DNA evidence, right? Well, you have to remember that this happened in 89. DNA testing wasn't what it is today. Of the three samples that were retrieved from the female airman and her clothing, only one had anything that was able to be tested, and it wasn't for DNA. It was a serological test to see what the blood type was. Those results were inconclusive, and because they tested it, any remaining DNA was destroyed during the testing process, so it couldn't be retested. So now it's 1992, and they have this guy, Earl Richmond Jr. They have him in custody for the murder of specialist Lisa Ann Nadeau. There was a lot of evidence that suggested Earl was the guy for the robberies and rape of the airmen. 
Some big differences between Earl and Rich were that Earl was right-handed and Richard was left-handed. The assailant held the gun in his right hand. Richard was missing some of his front teeth. Earl didn't have any missing teeth. And kind of a huge clue that everyone overlooked in Richard's trial. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. He wasn't circumcised, but the attacker was. And so was Earl. After Earl Richmond's extradition to New Jersey for Lisa's murder and the possible connection to the other assaults on base, Richard Stevens' conviction was successfully thrown out and he was finally released from prison. It turned out that even though his picture was on that police wall, Richard was not a violent criminal. After his release, he simply told the media, quote, I have no felonies on my record. I'm a misdemeanor man, end quote. Okay, let's get back to Earl Richmond Jr. He had pled not guilty by reason of insanity in the case against him for the rape and murder of specialist Lisa Ann Nadeau. The trial in that case began in 1993. Earl admitted that he killed her, but he claimed that the sex was consensual. His defense attorney, John Call, told the jury that they were there to solve a mental mystery, not a murder mystery. Mr. Call told the jury that, quote, Lisa Nadeau died as a result of Earl Richmond's psychological pain, end quote. The defense claimed that Earl had a psychological disorder that caused him to lie and take money. Oh, and wait, sometimes kill. Mm-hmm. The defense called a forensic psychologist and two psychiatrists to back up Earl's claims that he was not responsible for Lisa's murder due to mental incapacity. They testified that Earl's mental health deteriorated once he was discharged from the army in 1990. His psychological issues came from his childhood and how his father was an embarrassment to him because he served in the military, but only had a desk job. Which, y'all, isn't that kind of like crazy that they're even making this argument? And the defense further argued that his mother humiliated him by frequently slapping him in the face. Mr. Call also argued that Earl drank heavily and consumed mass quantities of drugs that made his fragile emotional state volatile, saying, quote, a lifetime of psychological problems arrived on the doorstep of Lisa Ann Nadeau the night she was killed, end quote. According to Earl's confession that he gave to investigators in North Carolina, he said that he knew Lisa and had gone to her house early on April 5th, 1991. He went there with some gin and some beers. In his account, they drank together and they had sex. During the night, they got into an argument about Earl's relationship with another woman. So Earl was like, so I got mad and I left. Earl's confession continued. He said that he left for only a few minutes, then came back to Lisa's house, letting himself in. And at that point, he and Lisa got into a fight and he claimed that Lisa came at him with a knife. During the struggle, he thought he might have stabbed her in the leg. Then he began to strangle Lisa with his hands. After that, he carried her up to the bedroom and laid her on her stomach. That's when he spotted the hammer and decided to hit her in the head with it. He wiped off his fingerprints, tied the blanket over Lisa's head, took the gin and beer cans and ducked out to spend the rest of the night at her friend's house. Assistant U.S. Attorney Alberto Rivas was up next. He told the jury that Lisa was sexually assaulted and after that horrible act, Earl put his hands around her neck and started squeezing. Mr. Rivas talked about how the gouge in Lisa's neck was caused by her own fingernails as she tried to pry Earl's hands away. He said, quote, Richmond is seeing the fear, the terror, the desperation of knowing her oxygen is being cut off. He keeps squeezing and squeezing and squeezing until finally her life is extinguished. Mr. Rivas closed out his argument by telling the jury 
that Earl Richmond Jr. should be convicted of murder. He argued that the defense provided excuses, not explanations. He was pissed at the defense saying that Lisa had consensual sex with Earl. He stated, quote, of all the lies, of all the distortions, this is the biggest one. That he had consensual sex with Lisa Nadeau is a lie, end quote. Mr. Rivas went on to say that the insanity plea was inconsistent with the evidence that Earl left behind. It was inconsistent with the lies that Earl told investigators. And the story kept changing every single time Earl told it. Rivas continued, this man is incapable of coming up with one story. It's clear that Mr. Richmond's statements are at best unreliable and at worst deliberate distortions of the truth. He ended his closing argument by saying, quote, what he did was not the product of mental defect or disease. What it is, is criminal. After the three-week trial, the jury returned a guilty verdict. Earl was ultimately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now that the trial was over in Lisa's case, Earl was returned to North Carolina where he would stand trial for the triple murder of Helissa, Philip, and Darian Hayes. This time, he was facing the death penalty for his crimes, but it was going to take another two years before this trial would start. In the spring of 1995, Earl Richmond Jr.'s North Carolina trial finally started. This time, he wasn't claiming mental defect like he did at Lisa's trial. No, 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 no. He was again admitting that he had committed the murders But this time, his excuse for brutally murdering a mother and her two children was that he was not responsible for the murders because he was too intoxicated to know what he was doing. I wasn't able to locate a trial transcript or a court opinion on the original trial, but I have pieced together the following from court opinions from appeals and newspaper articles from the time that this case took place. Earl's defense team called two of his sisters, Sheila Jordan and Erica Richmond, as their only witnesses. Sheila testified that Earl drank beer regularly and on the night of the party that she went to with her brother, he drank two or three 40-ounce beers before they got there. I'm going to repeat this. Two or three 40-ounce beers. When they got to the party, Earl drank a lot of hard liquor, which he normally didn't drink, and he did this in a short period of time. At some point, Sheila told the court that Earl drove her to buy $20 worth of crack cocaine and that each of them took a hit. Mind you, how can someone drive after drinking 340s and hard liquor? I'll never know. Anyway, after Earl took his hit, he became super obnoxious, according to his sister, which scared her because he had never acted like that after using crack cocaine. They went back to the party where Sheila saw Earl drink more alcohol for the next two hours than she had ever seen him drink. The second sister, Erica, took the stand and all she could testify to was that she knew that Earl drank beer regularly, but she really couldn't quantify like how much he drank, how often. She also testified that she witnessed Earl with a glass of alcohol throughout the night at that party. Earl's entire argument at this trial was based on his intoxication level the night that Halissa and her children were murdered. So he was basically saying, I couldn't have premeditated this because I didn't even know what I was doing. Prosecutors called the medical examiner, Dr. John Butts, who performed the autopsy on Halissa. He said that she was covered in blunt force injuries, including tears, scrapes, and bruises. She had blood over a portion of her brain under a bruise on her scalp. He testified that the skin around the opening of her vagina was abraded, 
which means it was scraped by means of friction. Halissa's cause of death was unquestionably caused by manual strangulation. The prosecutors called someone who would become a very controversial witness in the trial. The man's name was Mr. Arthur Nadu, Lisa Ann Nadu's father. He testified to the injuries Lisa sustained, the position of her body after death, and he also identified some pictures of her body from the crime scene. Mr. Nadeau also testified that Earl had strangled his daughter with his bare hands, just like he had done with Halissa. So that is huge. The father of Earl's first murder victim, no kidding, got to testify about that murder during a second trial involving a triple murder. Not surprisingly, the jury convicted Earl on all charges in the state of North Carolina. The death penalty sentencing phase quickly followed. During this phase, Earl's third sister, Andrea Knight, was brought to the stand. You might recall that she was the sister who, in essence, brought Earl to the front of the suspect list in the murder investigation. Andrea testified for matters in mitigation. She testified that Earl was an alcoholic, and she also told the court that he had been introduced to alcohol and sex at a very early age from his father, who was also an alcoholic. The prosecution's sentencing argument read in part, quote, All I ask you to do is pay close attention to what Judge Johnson says and use your common sense. When you know that someone has killed not just once, Lisa Ann Nadeau, not just twice, Alyssa Hayes, not just three times, Darian Hayes, but four times, Philip Hayes, four times, folks. What does it take? What does it take? There is only one way you can ensure that this defendant does not kill again, and that is to impose the penalty that he has earned and worked for and deserves. I ask you to impose the death penalty on all three cases, end quote. So do you want to guess how long the jury took to deliberate? One hour. They took one and a half hours to return with the sentence. And that sentence was the death penalty. And they also added a consecutive term of life in prison for first degree rape. Lisa Ann's father, Arthur, attended every single day of the trial. In an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer, he stated, quote, I looked at him right in his eyes. He would take one glance and then put his head down. He also requested to be present at Earl Richmond Jr.'s execution, saying, I made myself and my daughter a promise that I was going to follow it to the end, and that's what I'm doing. Death penalty cases in North Carolina are automatically reviewed by the highest court in the state. During the appeal process, Earl's defense team argued that he was, quote, utterly incapable, end quote, of premeditated murder based on the level of intoxication at the time of the killings and his inability to clearly remember what happened. The appellate court did not buy this argument because Earl was methodical in his killings. First, he raped Halissa, then he killed Philip, then Darian, then Halissa, killing the kids to eliminate all the eyewitnesses and finally killing the ultimate witness. The defense tried to say that the prosecutor erred by telling the jury that the act of strangling someone establishes premeditation. And the defense was arguing this at the appeal level because the prosecutor during the trial said, quote, and I submit to you that you have to premeditate when you choke someone to death. It's not like pulling out a gun and snapping a shot off. It's as deliberate as premeditated an act as you can have. Some time period, however short. When you have to walk all the way to a back bedroom, and you take a cord back there with you, that is premeditation, nothing but. When you take an eight-year-old to the floor who is struggling and you stab him and stab him and stab him, when you drive an instrument all the way through his body, that 
is premeditation, end quote. The defense brought up the fact that Earl showed remorse after the murders, but the prosecution countered with a statement that Earl made. When asked how he felt about being a pallbearer at the funerals, Earl simply replied, quote, it never gave me a bad feeling, end quote. Oh, this guy's blood ran ice cold. There's no remorse in that statement, y'all. The defense also argued that Arthur Nadeau should not have been allowed as a trial witness because everything he testified to was hearsay. It was hearsay from a federal trial in Jersey, and he wasn't an expert. They tried to argue that Earl had been denied his constitutional right to confront a knowledgeable witness about Lisa's killing. He claimed Lisa's dad was not the appropriate witness to bring forth that evidence. The prosecution noted that Earl's confession was way more detrimental to his case than anything Arthur Nadeau could have said on the stand. They also noted that Mr. Nadeau's testimony was accurate as to Lisa's injuries at the time of her death. The defense, well, they were like, well, that's kind of true. That's true, you know. On February 6, 1998, the Supreme Court of North Carolina ruled Earl Richmond Jr. received a fair trial, free from prejudicial error, and that the sentence of death is not disproportionate. Another appeal was filed asserting 16 different claims. One claim was that Earl had ineffective counsel, which was denied in 2003. The remaining claims were decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, and that hearing was held on May 4, 2004, and decided on July 20th. And just so you know, the appellate court did affirm the district court's decision. Earl Richmond Jr. went on death row in June of 1994, and after 10 years, he exhausted all of his appeals, including two last-minute pleas, one to the U.S. Supreme Court that was rejected, and a plea for clemency to the governor of North Carolina that was denied late on May 5th, 2005. The state of North Carolina was now ready to carry out its execution. And well, we learned through reporting that while in prison, not surprisingly, Earl turned over a new leaf. He was known as a peacekeeper who talked down other prisoners who were getting ready to throw punches. And in prison, he had embraced Christianity. He read a statement to his fellow prisoners two days before his execution. It read in part, quote, I want no medication, no Valium, no last meal. My victims got no last meal, end quote. Earl did not want to say any last words at the execution. His attorney, however, did read a statement that he made to the families, expressing his deepest apologies. His statement read in part, quote, My actions have crushed the dreams and hearts of many families. My heart cries out to heal your pain and suffering. It is my wish and prayer that my death will release you from the torment and pain that has accompanied you since the time of your losses. I understand why you hate me. It is not my wish to ask you to forgive because that would be selfish. God is well aware of my sins and shortcomings and how much of a hurdle they have been in my life. I realize that I have caused pain and suffering to those I love. God has changed my heart, my mind, and my spirit, which has multiplied by contrition. May God comfort you all, end quote. On May 6, 2005, at 1.50 a.m., Earl Richmond Jr. arrived in the execution room, strapped to a gurney, shirtless, and hooked up to the IV bags that contained the cocktail of drugs that would end his life. Behind a window, the witnesses sat waiting for the execution. Wayne Hayes, Earl's old best friend, was present. Wayne, you might recall, was Halissa's ex-husband and the father of the two children that Earl brutally killed. He was holding hands on one side with his sister, Tara Clark. On the other side sat Lisa Ann Nadeau's sister, Teresa Nadeau Collins, 
Teresa made a statement to the press prior to the execution stating, quote, he's a beast in human skin. He does not have any remorse, end quote. Two of Earl's sisters were also in attendance. As he was wheeled in, Earl looked at his sisters, smiled, mouthed that he loved them and gave them a wink. He also smiled at his legal team that was on the other side of the glass. The county district attorney and two reporters were also in attendance as witnesses to his execution. I was unable to find any information as to whether or not Arthur Nadeau, Lisa's dad, attended or not. The execution started at 2 a.m. Earl closed his eyes and turned his head away from the witnesses watching the process. He was declared dead 19 minutes later. Reporter Paul Wolverton, who was one of the two journalists in attendance, stated that it was not easy watching Earl die. He said, quote, a man came in alive and left dead and you knew ahead of time it was going to happen. He just was laying there and you realize after a bit that he was dead. And I got to thinking at one point, just a little bit ago, I saw how his face was animated. He closed his eyes and he never opened them again, end quote. The Cumberland County District Attorney Edward W. Granis Jr. released a statement that said, quote, We are grateful to the state of North Carolina for carrying out the execution of Earl Richmond Jr. The manner of his execution pales in comparison to the brutal and horrific murders of his three North Carolina victims. We trust that Earl Richmond Jr.'s execution has provided some measure of justice for his victims and for the citizens of the state of North Carolina, end quote. What a horrifically sad story. What's even crazier is how Earl is rarely talked about in true crime circles today. And what about Richard Stevens? That man was in jail for years, likely for Earl's crimes. But that piece of the puzzle is kind of left in limbo due to the murder trials that followed. Anyway, with that, I just want to say how much I appreciate you all so much for following my military true crime journey. If you love my show and never miss an episode, feel free to leave me a rating and a review wherever you listen, just so you can support the show. All right, shout out to Myrtle for researching and writing this episode for me. The sources for this episode include ClarkProsecutor.org, the National Registry of Exonerations, Justia.com, Philadelphia Inquirer, Asbury Park Press, The Jersey Journal, The News and Observer, The Charlottesville Observer, IndieWeek.com, AP News, and FindAGrave.com. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions. This episode's executive producers are Nicole, Falcon 13, Bob, Alicia, Tina, Jen, and Myrtle. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Working on our podcast. I don't want to.